Imagine these are touchscreen machines. Here, here's the machine, the X is the voter. The first time I used the touchscreen machine at our polling place two years ago, this is how they had them set up. And if you can imagine here, if you can imagine here that again, there's a panel here, a panel here, it's about this high or whatever, and, and that you're voting right here. They literally had them set up this way. So if I had just been a little taller and I had a better eyesight than I do, I could have seen exactly what the person standing over here could have done. And the people complained. I mean, they were absolutely upset. And the explanation that was given is that this is where the wall outlets were, and we didn't have, and we didn't have extension cords, so we, we couldn't move them around whatever. Uh, so anyway, but okay, so the, the, that, but again, the theory thing. So I it's also people tripping over cords. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, in in, in Mary's paper, whenever I hear a paper, hear results from a paper that uh, that uh, in which one of the results sounds counterintuitive to me, and strongly, you know, uh, sort of like the, the magnitude of the effect being so great about early voting and. And when Barry actually then assigned a causal explanation to it, you know, I can imagine association and all that, but sort of saying that, uh, well, you know, on election day, you know, early voting, there's just, you know, you've lost a lot of the hubbub and lots of the excitement and things like that. And and I began thinking about that, and uh, and I realized an N of one doesn't doesn't disprove anything, but I began thinking, wait a second now. And I realize Ohio is not just simply an early voting state, but I know what the reaction of the campaigns were and the political party organizations, county and state, to the fact that we had early voting. And they actually, here in Franklin County, knew who had voted early. And so therefore, in fact, the campaigns actually were very, very skillful and really targeting people who had not yet voted. Now, I realize Ohio was a key state in 2008. Central Ohio was, in fact, uh, 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 you know, a very, very important area and all of that. But I think maybe one part of the, if you want, we're going to extend the analysis to really ask the question, okay, given that you have early voting, is there, in fact, uh, some other kinds of activities that happen, at least in certain areas that are highly contested, that might in fact uh, uh, stimulate some turnout because in fact you can focus your activities. And I can assure you on election day here, it, it, there was a tremendous hubbub of activity. So that then got me to think a little bit more, is it possible, and I was looking at the states that, you know, that, 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 that fell into different categories, is it possible that part of the results you obtain are a function of the states that happen to have early voting and have uh, election day registration and all that? Meaning, hypothetically, if it turned out that the early voting states were states that weren't battlegrounds, and it's not, I mean, there's a mix here, but if the early voting states were really states that really did not have great contests for the presidency, or they were states that, for whatever reason, traditionally didn't have high turnout, or there wasn't great campaign activity, or they were disproportionately states that were safe for one party or the other, might not that mix of states, the coincidence of where early voting took place uh, and where it did not, might that not partially explain, especially given the kinds of analysis that you're doing, uh, might that not partially explain why, in fact, early voting seems to have a negative impact? 
And what I'm worried about is that, and, and I might be wrong on this, but what I worry about is that we'll, uh, we'll read a newspaper account, you know, three months from now. Political scientists say early voting hurt, uh, hurts uh, turnout, and then we're going to find out in various states that uh, people who are not interested in early voting will say, oh, time to eliminate early voting because we have so, we social scientists have said it reduces turnout. Yeah, and again, you made it a causal statement. It may just simply be an associational statement here, but again, I think more analysis needs to be done, and it would be fun to actually find some areas where, in fact, you have early voting and, and see whether or not there have been, you know, I won't say compensatory, so I'm not sure I agree with the conclusion in the first place, but there really have been places where people then have taken advantage of early voting to say, we now are going to make sure we do everything possible on election day and the days before to get those people out to vote who we, in fact, who have not yet, in fact, voted earlier or whatever. So that was my major question. And again, more of a theoretical question about, about your paper. And then very quickly on, on Dan's paper and, and Ned's, and uh, uh, Ned never got to the last point of his paper, uh, and that was talking about, uh, he got to the point about talking, let's have perhaps uh, mechanisms that uh, where we can adjudicate disputes, and then he had talked about, I, I'm still going to use the term shadow courts, sort of, but, but he was, I think, appropriately pessimistic at least in the paper, about really reforming the system. And so one of the things he was talking about was uh, sort of the power of shame and guilt. So he was really talking here, well, if we could set up one of these courts, not real court, but, you know, sort of a meeting, but, you know, a shadow court, and, and they then did what men did in the experiment they did. They then actually went ahead and ruled on the issue before the real judges did, and they ruled on it in such a way that it was, uh, you know, a good decision, not overly partisan, and all of that. Maybe that which, uh, and I realize you didn't quite use this phraseology. Maybe that would shame exactly. the real decision makers into doing the right thing. And my only comment is, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paul, with Paul, you repeat that? <laughs> they have no shame. They have no shame. <laughs> so, so, thank you. And, and, and throughout, throughout Dan's paper, and Dan cited uh, a number of national public opinion polls that in the abstract they asked, oh, wouldn't you like to have a well-functioning election system? <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm being, I'm being a little unfair here, but, uh, but asking questions like that, and then the, the obvious, well, the obvious point is that when you finally get to reform and trying to change things, particularly when you're dealing with changes in a state's constitution, and I think I think Dan acknowledges this, at some point you have to run up into the run up to the reality of what you're dealing with in terms of who's in control, political culture, and things like that. And so here we are in Ohio, where, for example, on multiple occasions we have had cha a chance to reform our method of selecting judges, to move from a really kind of partial, even though our elections are technically nonpartisan, they're tremendously partisan, and two times the voters have uh, turned it down, uh, and both times the proposal was sort of like merit selection or whatever, and both times that voters turned it down, the arguments used against it were, oh my God, they're trying to take away your right to vote. Who's going to appoint these judges if it's not the... And then we've tried a number of times to change our method of redistricting. And uh, and again, key arguments against that were, 
well, who are these unelected officials who, in fact, are going to, to make these decisions or whatever? And, of course, other states handle unelected officials quite you know, well in terms of doing this. The challenge here, I think, is to really think about con the context, the political environment, and all of that, and to recognize here that in some states it will be easier, and I think in Dan's paper here, you know, you make reference to the tradition of good government in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, you know, for example, states like Ohio and Illinois do not share that tradition. <laughs> so let, 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 let me stop this, but let, let, let's open it up. Well, I guess I should first need a chance to... <coughs> take I, I already just Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, one thing I would say is we, we do measure campaign competitiveness to try to get at whether the early voting states just happen to be lopsided. And, and you know, I, I think you're right, there are a mix. There are about 20 states. A lot of them are in the south or in the mountain west, which turned out was a little lower. There's also Florida yeah. and some others. So I, we want to focus more on that. But at the moment, I, I just don't want to comment about that. Okay. Yeah, um, on the shadow idea, um, the we thought about invoking that concept when Minnesota went ugly. But the good news was that in Minnesota, the um, chief justice mechanism selected a panel that looked as fair as anything that we could come up with in the shadow. So, the, so it was sort of a natural experiment. So we didn't need to invoke uh, a private sector um, body to replicate what the machi real machinery of government would do as a model, uh, if you will. Um, but still on the table, both the, both the Brookings Institution and AI have a joint election uh, reform project, and they are interested. They, they helped sponsor this experiment. And you know, looking ahead to 2012, a long time from now, but I think they are interested, perhaps, in having this in place, such that you know, if there was a disputed presidential election, you know, could the private sector convene uh, an institution that would have no real power? But it would be a yardstick. By which, you know, it might not actually shame the real court or the real institutional actors, but it would be at least a yardstick by which the public could judge the performance of the real actors and then make a, a, a decision about whether or not they thought their real government institutions were up to the, the task. But precisely for the reasons that you said, that the, this modeling or shadow idea is only partially useful, I've been turning my attention uh, in, in some other work, which which um, is not yet fully formed yet to, to try to at least propose what a better real institution would look like. And for a presidential election, it could be structured either as an advisory body to Congress, <coughs> because if you know the 12th Amendment, and you know that we won't go into that now unless people want to, but, but you have to amend the 12th Amendment in the Constitution to give it real power, which is difficult enough, obviously. Um, or if you want to dream in that regard, you know, if you if you could start with a clean slate, and we we were having a good institution for these sorts of disputes, what would it would it look like? And you know, very quickly, the concept that I'm working with that I love reaction to is a two-step process. So step one would be to appoint a body which is the appointing authority, not the tribunal itself. <coughs> and so, for example, you'd have the leadership in both houses of Congress, both parties, pick an existing federal ju judge. And the mechanism that I'm coming up with is, say you have the majority leader and the minority leader have a slate of 10 federal judges that they each identify as their preferred slate. You trade those lists, and so the other one picks 
from the, so, so John Boehner picks somebody from Pelosi's list. Pelosi picks someone from Boehner's list. You replicate that in the Senate. So then you have a four-member bipartisan appointing authority of judges who are somewhat insulated from pure partisanship. They clearly have a connection to the partisan people that put them on that panel. And then that four-member body has to pick a three-judge panel comparable to what we did in our hypothetical let, 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 let me jump in. I noticed there were a couple of smiles as you were talking about hypothetically pulling <laughs> in. If you're talking about citizen confidence, so linking now to just, you know, the, the other paper, uh, uh, and I understand, obviously we all understand the motivation here, but so many of these proposals start off, well, we'll let the majority leader and the minority leader and uh, each chamber, you know, pick somebody. Uh, I think that'll be the answer is sort of awesome. But isn't starting that way already <coughs> tainting the outcome that you want? Even though you'll claim, well, it's balanced, it's fair, and all that. I mean, are there other ways of doing this? And one answer might be in certain states, you couldn't do that in Ohio unless, for example, you, if you're doing it, get started that way or whatever. But have you guys really thought about, you know? Yeah, well, my, um, I'm working on a book project with uh, Moore's colleague, Steve Huffner. Dan and Steve and I um, collaborate on a lot of projects. And Steve is now doing the international comparative analysis to look at how, the, you know, around the world, democracies around the world do this. Um, and, you know, the preliminary observation from that is most democracies have newer constitutions than, than we do. Uh, and virtually all of those democracies have set up the kinds of tribunals that Dick you know, that they got their wants. We don't have that because our political system is a leftover from the Madisonian legacy to try to avoid political parties. And so part of the, the story of this book that we're writing is why as a country, we have never developed appropriate institutions because we suffer from our Madisonian legacy. And maybe, you know, again, you would need to look abroad for examples or at least to come up with some new institutions given the reality of political parties in the way that Madison didn't anticipate. I mean, even if you set up a commission uh, that would be somewhat wise and, and, uh, and biased and Partial. I mean, what would keep people from going to the courts after that anyway and challenge that? I mean, I mean, the courts ultimately, I mean, would not be out of the loop because uh, if, if one side doesn't 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 uh, doesn't agree with that, it will end up in the courts anyway. Well, do we, you know, if we do a constitutional amendment, we we can do whatever we want. We can divest courts of jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. In the absence of a constitutional amendment, you know, most people think that the lesson of 2000 was that the U.S. Supreme Court intervened to assert final authority. That's not really accurate. The, the critical moment was Gore's decision to accept the Supreme Court ruling. If Gore had pushed, now that may have, may have destroyed his political credibility and career, <coughs> there were scenarios that would have taken us into Congress, despite the Supreme Court ruling, and taken us into very interesting scenarios under the 12th Amendment, about who within Congress has control. As you may know, one of one reading of the Constitution, but only one reading of it, is that the President of the Senate has authority to declare which votes from each state count. Well, who was the President of the Senate? Al Gore. You know, um, we could we could go discuss that at length. The point is, the next time this happens, we don't know for sure 
that the Supreme Court will intervene. It exercised discretionary jurisdiction because a potential particular petition was presented to it with these signs of equal protection claims. Some people read the Supreme Court as thinking it got burned by intervening and having a five-court decision. So, so the, one of the lessons is institutional uncertainty. Not only don't we have a good institution in our country, we don't really know what institution we have. But, but didn't that Gore really have con con competing deterrence from, from Florida that he could have chosen one <coughs> from the other? I mean, did Florida send more than He didn't one? get to that stage. Now, you know, they're getting, if we're in the realm of hypothetical, if we turn back the clock, the, the best actor that he had in Florida on the ground was, he had two. He had the Florida Supreme Court on his side, and he had the Florida Attorney General. And so the question is, after December 12th, would either of those two Democratic actors have made any additional moves to try to help him get before Congress? And how strong would those moves in the state have to be to give Democrats in Congress a plausible basis for asserting power. I mean, clearly there were going to be Republican actors in Florida that would have had counter moves, including the governor, including the legislature. But if the Attorney General of Florida had just sent in a letter saying, you know, there was something called a butterfly ballot, there was something called purging, you know, I hereby certify Gore the winner, <laughs> it might have looked silly, and you know, but and the, and the point looking forward is, and the point of our Colorado hypothetical, is you, you, can, you know, these are fact dependent. I mean, it, you know, it mattered on the ground that the hanging chads went the way it did and they didn't go butterfly ballot. Adjust the facts a little bit, the scenario, you know, so we don't know how this is going to play out next. <coughs> Um, I wanted to turn uh, back to Barry's paper and talk about this uh, point that was brought up about the counterintuitive findings of the early uh, voter registration state. Um, I would say when I heard you present that, that I uh, agreed with that general assumption, having just lived in two uh, early voting states, and I wanted to uh, offer some, maybe some ideas on how you could collect some additional data. Because I also have seen the other uh, point true that I think if it's competitive, it does offer an environment to really have better turnout because you can more precisely target people who have not yet voted um, yet. But moving from California, which was a, a early voting state, had a lot of early voting, but also had precinct voting to Washington State, which Washington State is now the same as Oregon, um, uh, all vote by mail, entirely vote by mail. There's absolutely no hubbub on election day. There is no election day. Um, when they go out to do the news stories, they stand like at the post office. There's no precincts. <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere they can stand. There's nothing. People are not taking ballots anywhere. And by election day, you know, 80% of the votes are in. So it. And I wondered if to, to better capture what you're talking about, and then you could put it in the models. If you could do, you know, news searches of um, media attention, uh, whether it's actual television or even newspaper, um, you know, about election day and turnout and and those sort of things as uh, maybe a proxy for capturing this, quote, level of excitement, because I'll tell you, in, you know, in California, there was still that level of, we have to turn out on election day, and you have that opportunity. In Washington State, if you haven't voted yet, um, I see that, you know, reverse incentive to not vote, because you may, if you don't get your ballot in by 5 o'clock, when the polls, you know, close uh, to the mail, you may not vote at all. And certainly have relatively easy measures about the volume of commercials <coughs> and advertisements. That's sure. not the same thing, but... 
Yeah, it would be interesting if you could come up with a measure really of then on the ground sort of mobilization activities, which would be much more difficult to do. But yeah, I, I think that would be the way to really sort of further tease this relationship. And, see what and I just let me add, you may have a, a sixth category there that is just Washington and Oregon, in which, you know, theoretically we might expect early voting to help boost turnout if you still have the option of turning on election day, right? These lowering the cost of voters should, uh, of voting should work if you have multiple options. But in, in Washington and Oregon, you have only one option, and that's to send your ballot back by the mail. You can't say, like, I want to be a precinct voter and get my sticker, because there's no precincts. I think, John, you were next. Yeah. Uh, question on equal protection issue. Um, I mean, let me make two opposite arguments. Uh, one is that everybody is equally protected in the sense that voting is so trivial an act that you can't make much difference. So if you're voting or not voting, you're voting 12 times, you don't make much difference. So everybody's basically equal, and all you're doing is changing the microscopic probability slightly. Uh, the opposite argument is that some people are easy, it's easier to get to the polls in Denver than it is in rural areas, so therefore it's unequal. Consequently, the ice storm would essentially be an equalizing uh, event. So in, in future elections, we should contract with Todd, who wrote ice storms in the cities to make it equal. I mean, the point is that you obviously quite absurd. Well, there, that, I mean, you know... Um, Good answer. The, the courts are working within the constraints of the equal protection jurisprudence that has been developed since the um, apportionment cases, Reynolds versus Sims, Baker versus Carr, in the poll tax case, um, you know, from the from the 1960s, and so you know, Bush versus Gore comes on the scene in 2000, surprises some people that that the conservative Rehnquist court, by you know, majority, finds an equal protection violation uh, in terms of the treatment of the hanging chads. Um, you know, some people would have, if you would. It, it was counter ideological to where their voting patterns would be on both sides. Right, the liberals who reject the claim normally support more equal protection rights. The conservatives who accepted the claim normally don't, and that was also true, by the way, of the Article <coughs> Two issue for technical reasons. They they ruled in ways that looked like they were candidate oriented, party oriented, as opposed to their normal jurisprudential methods. That's what that's what upset most law observers about the Bush versus Supreme Court decision. So that, so after, and Bush versus Gore, remember, is a fascinatingly opaque decision. It's hard to know, we know that they say equal protection violation on these facts, but we don't exactly know what the principle is that underlies those facts. And, and, and there's this very famous and disputed sentence in the opinion that says, we decide today's case only we don't mean to set a precedent for next time. <laughs> you know, in one sense, that's a truism. But in another sense, what's going on there? And so part of the reason why we wanted to do this hypothetical exercise was to say, how would courts, in the aftermath of Bush versus Gore, handle this? This notion that Bush versus Gore is for one day only can't be true if provisional ballots and absentee ballots and the whole infrastructure of the system offers up a myriad of replicable issues that are comparable. And these new courts now have yet one more precedent to deal with, not just the old Baker versus Carr precedent. They now have the new 2000 Bush versus Gore precedent. But, but how do they have to stop? I mean, Dick Nini said that 10% of people had difficulty finding their polling votes. 90% didn't, but 10% did. That's a lot of people. 
So therefore, should you make it equal that everybody can try to always make security easily? They can just go on forever. That's why we get the idea of the rural versus if there's inequality built in, or there's no inequality except the idea of voting is trivial. Right. Two sentences, real quick. At the oral argument that we conducted, the judges focused very much on this issue of man-made inequalities versus natural inequalities. Should it matter? Shouldn't it under those? So the, your issue came up as the judges talked about it. Secondly, interestingly, both the real three-judge panel in Minnesota that had mixed membership in terms of party background and our three-judge panel for our hypothetical case, which had similar mixed membership, both rejected equal protection claims notwithstanding the precedent of Bush versus Gore, and explain in comparable reasoning why that's true. So that's a signal to me as a lawyer saying these claims are unlikely to succeed in the future. But also interestingly, despite the, all the um, snickering about that one sentence in Bush versus Gore about this is for today only, the two panels in 2008 in Minnesota and in our case they were similarly fact-specific. They similarly noted that what we're deciding today is for these facts, we can't tell you what the equal, equal protection answer would be if the facts were somewhat different. Yeah, I, like others, I was struck by a very, uh, it seemed sort of counterintuitive finding, and he suggests, but doesn't really demonstrate a mechanism for why this may, uh, uh, may be the case. And I was thinking, uh, 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 with regard to the early sort of move within the context of this data set, would be to convert that early voting uh, 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 variable uh, into uh, um, some sort of continuous variable. So you'd know, okay, how many people in uh, whatever state where you're doing this actually uh, avail themselves of this opportunity. <coughs> because if it's like you say, it's the buzz is off, well, you gave a good example about, you know, so, okay, the buzz is totally off here in Washington. But maybe somewhere else it's not, and so because they, they don't use it very much. And I was just wondering if it suggests that to you as a way of, of proceeding. The other thing, it won't make any difference. I assume these are not multi-level models that you're doing. So it's not going to make any difference if you get 75,000 cases. So you can inflate the standard errors by a lot. It's totally significant. The other thing was on Nick's paper. See, what really struck me was this is a study of voters, right? It's not a study. Seems to me if there's ever a place where you need a selection. Uh, equation is here because you're going to get talk about anticipatory, be, uh, you know, anticipations uh, 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 of a bad experience. People stay home, so I would say the way to go with this, in terms of revising, it would be to have a selection equation, which would be a turnout equation, and then have your equation afterwards. Because otherwise, we've just got these guys who have already overcome all the stuff and gone to the polls. Now you could also add to it if you could get some good contextual or environmental measure. You know, some measure of the newspaper stories in that area about expectations about problems at the polling places. Uh, and you could even probably, I think if you're looking at this area, probably the greatest number of stories were what about expected length of lines and things like that because we had had a horrible experience here. And so that might be something uh, that, that might help, again, specify the equations you finally do estimate. Yeah. I think Paul, you yeah, I, I wanted to stay on this point about various papers yeah. and the, the surprising finding about you know, the negative effects of, of early voting. Uh, and Herb, you raised it in your comments, and I just want to kind of follow up on that. It seems to me that the campaigns are so different in the battleground states from the non-battlegrounds, so different that there may not even be campaigns 
least at the presidential level, that some of the states are already proceeding for the other party. And that's something you can control on. And maybe you have. I mean, maybe you have some kind of a competitive, competitive measure in there. But that would be worth doing because in a battleground state, the parties are really going to be after voters all the way up until election day. In a non-battleground state, uh, the, the, the presidential campaigns have no people doing much of anything. Californians were all going out of state. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ohio had all these Californians <laughs> here trying to tell us what yeah. to do. Yeah. 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 That's right. Well, apropos that, when, when you look at the list, and I want to tell you, I may, I may misclassify some states here, but if you look at the 20 states that are early voting, uh, some of them, like Hawaii and Maryland, are so solidly Democratic. So, and even though there's going to be efforts, you know, there's other, other races in those states, I think you look at Colorado, Florida, I'll put Indiana, because that was certainly in play, and Nevada. And I think when you look at, I, I may be wrong here, uh, I think uh, I think a lot of the other states were pretty much decided, whether it decided for the Republicans or the Democrats or whatever. So that's that's why I'm sort of worried about the compositional effects here. I just follow up on that. I, I think it probably calls for an interaction term in, in the model between those two things. But the other point I wanted to make is that when you're talking about the campaigns in a competitive state continuing to mobilize voters or mobilize early voters, uh, you're making the assumption that uh, this goes to Herb's comment that, that they're that they're mobilizing equally across the non-voters, and I don't think that's true, right? They're using the vote history that's available to them, and they're they're mobilizing only people that have voted in the past regularly or at least somewhat regularly. And, and that is what's so actually and the mobilization actually narrows. Yeah, to a smaller and smaller to a smaller and smaller pool. They're not they're not they're not wasting their uh, resources on people with little vote history. Uh, and there's some good literature on that by Bob Stein and Paul Gronk and others that, that would help. I think Barry explain your your counterintuitive finding and be I think somewhat consistent with it. So. I think an interaction term and then some of that literature that shows the representativeness of early voters and how they don't, the composition doesn't change that much for the I think, the case. And then uh, on the, on the Mimi et al. paper, um, I was thinking that one of the interesting things to do uh, along the lines of what's here on the board is to, for each of those expectations <coughs> to match it up with its comparable election day experience. I, as I recall your questions, you have something comparable for each of those things, and then to simply code them as whether the expectation was exceeded, met, or not met, and, and estimate a model uh, of satisfaction along those lines, and you, you, I think, get some pretty powerful results there uh, that would allow you to, to uh, sort of decompose the, the elements of satisfaction and get at what's really important. That would be really interesting. Please. So on the NIMI piece, I wonder if part, you have this really strong age effect, and I wonder if partly of what's going on is that what you would want to see is not just expectations but past experience, um, and that, that, that it's less about expectations and more just about familiarity. And so, um, you know, is it just the case that if you pulled the lever before, you've waited for the one, you've signed in the book, that you know you just know what happens when you're there and. And so it would be really nice to be able to see it is the new voters 
that are kind of having the worst experience, it's really just a function of their new voters. I, I wasn't sure if you had some measure in the survey of new voters. I, I'm not sure myself. We have to look at it because of the way the cooperation and what alternative is if you don't have a new voter explicitly measured, you can at least look by those people who aren't eligible to vote um, age. Right? Is this the cooperative uh, campaign analysis project? Yeah. Yeah, that's a study of re uh, registered voters only. So no, my, no, no, that's not right. This is the CCES. Yeah, this is a different one. This is a different one because yeah. if, if it's the fabric. Uh, uh, Jackman one, then we can't go along the lines that we're suggesting here. I do have a question that asks what their experience was in the past. Yeah. So they, well, would have, they wouldn't have a past no, experience if they weren't past voters. Right. Yeah, sure. So just use that as your experience. And I was just going to emphasize the same thing from my own personal experience. I was one of the people in Franklin County in 04 who stood out in the rain, was only an hour and three quarters line to vote that day for us. Actually, they had divided the uh, our polling place in half. The A to K part of the alphabet actually had a very fast line in the alphabet <laughs> state. And I contemplated going downtown and changing my last name. <laughs> that would you would have had time. To do that. I would have had ample time to do that. Uh, so, but so putting in past experience, you know, I've switched to early voting as a result because it's you know so much easier to vote by mail. I don't know whether they'll actually count the ballot. But that's so much <laughs> yeah, There's less pain involved than not counting the ballot than maybe standing outside again for an hour. We're, we're waiting for the first news story. 50,000 mailed in ballots found in storage room at Board of Elections. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happens. 20, 000, uh, I wanted to raise a question, Ned. This is directed more to you, but also in some ways to Dick. As well, it seems to me that there, there are two issues here in terms of or the late dissatisfaction with the current situation in the election administration. One has to do with what I think is a larger number of contested ballots that may come out of the Help America Vote Act because of that provisional category. In Ohio, I think we had 600,000? 200,000. 200,000. Provisional ballots. Yeah, correct. So these are kind of contested at the voting place in a way and have to be resolved later. So that's one source of dissatisfaction that really comes from the laws that were designed to make the costs of voting lower than in the past. And then there's the whole question of how do you resolve contestation of the ballot. And the people can be dissatisfied. This kind of brings me back to Dixon paper with either one. You know, they have their own experience at the polls. And I know the person who was next to me who was told you have to vote provisionally was very dissatisfied. And I, in fact, learned new words that are always spoken in my neighborhood. Uh, and stormed out of there. He didn't even want to vote. Uh, but also people who live in states where there is a Minnesota situation or a Florida Situation must come all away from that with a very bad taste in their mouth about the voting process. Now, whether that turns up in the actual questions you ask, uh, or is sort of in the back of their mind when they're answering those questions, is another matter. But speak to these two different issues. Do we have problems on both fronts? Sure. Um, well, first, you're absolutely right. I mean, the 
there were some states that had provisional balloting before the Help America Vote Act, but, but not many and not in, with the same scope. And so that really is a major innovation since 2002, and it was in part designed to redress one of Florida's problems, which was the purging, the erroneous purging. And so, in some amount of my work, I've talked about provisional ballots supposedly as an insurance policy for voters, you know, kind of as a safety net for them. But administrators have actually used it in a different way, which is, you know, used it for that reason, but also as a safety net against the possibility of uh, ineligible voters casting ballots. So there's, in some states, there's an incentive to increase the number of provisional vote ballots because then you can ask questions about them later. Maybe you know this person isn't proper. Um, folks who are concerned about voter ID and voter fraud tend to do that. And so the the pool of these potentially disputed ballots has increased dramatically in those states that don't have election day registration. Um, and lawyers salivate as a result, because they, that's their first pile. What Minnesota taught us was that absentee ballots can become a second category of provisional ballots if the lawyers want to make them such. And it turns out, I haven't done the whole national statistics, but it turns out the rate of rejecting absentee ballots is quite high, much higher than I anticipated. Right? So, so 12,000 absentee ballots were rejected in Minnesota, 20,000 in Ohio. Michael McDonald, in his sort of analysis of the turnout nationally, tells me that because of so many absentee ballots rejected in California, which votes absentee at a very high rate, not as high as Oregon and Washington, but a very high rate, that, that the number of rejected absentee ballots in California affects national turnout statistics. So, so if, you, if you treated them as voters, you would actually adjust what your 2008 turnout number was. Because they were attempted voters, and it was rejected. And this gets to the point about seven. One of the questions that I was going to ask about your um, paper, and then you can talk about dispute resolution back if you want to, but you know, voters have a, have, a, have a subjective evaluation of their own experience, which may not match the reality of their voting process. In fact, they may have a better subjective sense of their own participation in the electorate than the reality. I mean, most of the people whose absentee ballots were rejected in Minnesota had no idea that they had been rejected. And therefore, they thought that they had participated in just fine. Now, maybe that's a good, you know, sort of a false consciousness of saying that's only participation. I, don't know, know, I think, you know, the point made before, though, about looking at young voters, and I had forgotten this, but right in this area, and this campus area, uh, there were actually legal battles on election day because, in fact, poll workers had not been adequately trained to understand who had to vote provisionally. And so literally in some of the precincts right in the campus area, if a student were not living at the same address but were in the same, was in the same precinct, they were told, being told such things as you got to go downtown and vote. You can't vote. You got to vote provisionally or whatever. And I think by 10 o'clock in the morning, they'd gone, you know, getting uh, uh, judgments from the county board of elections and getting that out. And you start wondering. I mean, in terms of you know, you know people who've had a lengthy experience uh, with with uh, voting and whether it's waiting at least you know, if you've waited in line an hour before, at least you know if you're waiting in line, you're going to get to the head of the line at some point. 
if you've never had that experience, you know, so I think actually it'd be, it'd be sort of interesting to really delve more deeply and also delve more deeply into what poll workers know and don't know. And we in Ohio are going through a generational replacement now. Our typical poll workers have been fine citizens who have been working at the polls for multiple, multiple, multiple decades or whatever. And, uh, and we've now really gotten to the stage where we're talking about actually training high school kids to actually work at the polls to get a replacement generation. But uh, uh, and, and we, all of us can tell stories of inconsistencies uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the performance of poll workers. So that, and, and they're the per people who are supposed to, as you're confronting on election day the system, they're the ones who ideally should be able to facilitate the process. And I think in many cases, they in fact are saying, you know, the best way not to screw up, you'll vote provisionally. Or we'll tell you to go downtown. And that's just, that's, that's, that's bad. Yes? Yeah, so, uh, for Barry, uh, I, re I really like the Venn diagram. So that's a very nice way to present that uh, complicated set of uh, data. And uh, so then I was also, I'm look, I was admiring that and penciling out how many cases were in which were that very most. You got 22 states in one, and six in one, and five in the other, if I'm getting it that way. But so it seems like this argument that you're really just picking at, it seems like the, the critical argument is you're just picking at a geographic variation of some sort of state. So, so, so to dummy variable sort of problem. So, and one thing you might be able to do, which would be pretty easy to do, would just be randomly draw out. Uh, at least for the early voting, you know, you got 22 states in there, just randomly draw out a few at a time and re-estimate and, and show that it's a stable. I'm sure it would be. Now, we've, we've worried about all those things. Um, so one way we deal with it in one of the models is fixed effects for states. We try to take out pre-existing differences in turnout across states that aren't captured in our observable variables. But we also feel like there's a pretty good set of observables. You know, in the county-level stuff, we've got every demographic, well, we have more than we put in the model. In the CPS, we've got, you know, we estimated one model of 30 or 40 covariates, so we've got 75,000 cases. Um, but as I say, you can go back to scatter plots, and they, they will just jump out at you. So, thank you. you know, we keep poking on all those things. So, I mean, somebody, somebody noted that our list of early voting states has a kind of southern focus. Just look at what's listed there. And if you're LSR and you think about state culture, and happening there that maybe we're not capturing. You know, maybe this kind of sampling technique can be a way to address that. Right. But you also have, um, you know, just as many non-early voting states that are also non-competitive going to mm -hmm. the point that was made that this could be a function <coughs> that tend to be, you know, for every early voting state in the south or the west that's uncompetitive, you have a non-early voting state. And so I think that... Those states are non-competitive. Right. Yeah. And so I think you're already capturing that. I don't think that's a problem. It would only be if those 22 were the only non-competitive states, but um, most of them aren't. Uh, so I don't think it's... Uh, I actually had a, a comment for Dick, um, and that was, you had a, a point about concern over um, the privacy of the ballots and tried to explain why uh, so many people thought that and why there were racial uh, differences. The first question I wondered was, could that be reflected at all through absentee voters? Uh, how many absentee voters? I mean, presumably you have lots of uh, absentee voters in your polls. Um, and when we switched from having some precincts open to compulsory absentee voting, there was a big sort of outcry of people who had never voted absentee before that they have to sign their name on a ballot with their name on it that inside of it has their vote. 
Uh, and they had to do this huge voter education outreach that says, well, this is exactly how it works. The first thing they do is scan it, and they count you as a voter. Then someone else takes it and separates it apart, and they send your vote over here. Because people are saying, like, I'm going to put my vote in a, in a piece of mail and send it to someone. It says how I voted. Uh, and so I just wondered. I didn't know maybe if you had control for that or reacted that. Uh, I don't have a good uh, sense uh, for African Americans, but for Hispanics, it could be um, that some voters uh, are requesting uh, translation assistance or other assistance um, at, for, as of Section 203. And so um, their vote may not be private. If somebody is standing there helping you read the ballot to you, um, then your vote isn't private. So that, that was the first thing that jumped out at me. One real quick in response to Paul. Um, there, there is some data on voter attitudes to litigation and and their feelings about how contestability. And I'm trying to remember whether it was a paper that that Hall did or or um, Paul Gronke did. But focused on Ohio's litigation, I think before 2008, and what how that may have affected people's perception of the of the process. Um, I, I haven't seen any quantification of what happened in Minnesota, but the, the anecdotal impression that I have is that the Minnesota public, who were you know, pretty dissatisfied with their two candidates, and there was an independent who won a substantial percentage of the vote, 14%, 11%, they liked the fact that they saw their system handling the problem in ways that were trans transparency was the biggest positive takeaway from the Minnesota Experience the fact that you could watch on the internet the canvassing board, look at you know the image of Florida of the official looking at the hanging chat through the light was a negative <laughs> image of the voting official, but the image of the canvassing board in Minnesota putting an oval on the screen and seeing whether or not the squiggle was within the oval or outside the oval that translated by and large as a positive experience for the Minnesota public, which which has an interesting story about the relationship of the public to their officials and their understanding of the, of, of the process. And I think you could link up that observation with this paper, if I'm remembering correctly, that's a preliminary analysis on, on voter um, satisfaction with how their officials handle this. And so at that point, you get into that. Sure. Yeah. That and Mike Albert. What if we were to do something uh, really radical, like uh, having all male voting just for the presidency, and or, or maybe for federal offices. The idea of, of having separate uh, polling days uh, for uh, federal offices and for state offices, uh, people always say, well, it's just you know, you're duplicating the effort and it's uh, way too expensive and people don't want to go to the polls that often. And, and uh, uh, so that, that doesn't seem to be a, a starter at all. But if you had male battle days, now, if, if you could also, if you could get some way, so the ballot, so we actually had one ballot for president instead of 50 different ballots. And sometimes they do actually, even who's on the ballot varies from one state sure. to another for, for the presidency. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if, if we could get, I, I'm thinking of, uh, part of me says these problems are just never going to go away. I mean, all the, the, the wide array of problems we have, uh, just, we're not going to get, we're not going to solve all these problems. Uh, with, with the way we run things now. Uh, I think uh, Herbie started out by saying, uh, who is it, that Dick uh, Hunter yeah. wants to just do everything totally differently, and then you add, of course, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but is there anything that could happen 
Like, for instance, uh, just while sitting here, it just occurred to me that maybe mail balloting, where we had one vote, uh, one office we were, we were voting on, would tr perhaps in some ways tremendously simplify things. The only way we do that, perhaps, would be mail balloting. Yeah, it would be interesting to speculate, but I gather Oregon has had a wonderful experience and there's no problem with <laughs> fraud and things. I, I, mean, I assume that's, that's what everybody tells me. The post office loves the business. Well, some of us have made the observation that absent, you know, when people go to the polls and they vote provisionally and all of that, hell, people who go to the polls by and large are really pretty honest people and we're tougher on them mm -hmm. than we are on absentee voters. And so the question I wonder about, and again, Oregon has such a wonderful political culture, uh, I think we would have a cottage industry in Ohio. <laughs> and it might not be illegal, but it would get to your questions of privacy and other kinds of things like that, that if we went to uh, you know, postal, all-male postal, you know, postal ballots or whatever, I mean, it would be a dramatic change, and I'm not sure we'd handle it with as great much dignity as Oregon. <laughs>
as a, and, and that just raises some complexities. And those complexities actually surfaced in the Minnesota litigation um, because there's sort of the desire, as there was in Minnesota, for more ID, more hurdles if you submit an absentee ballot and you're a new registrant. And a lot of the rejected ballots that were questioned in litigation were these same-day absentee ballots. Um, the, other, the other point on, on that is that um, it's a relationship between the difference between law in the books and law on the ground and culture. Minnesota definitely was not a no-excuse absentee ballot jurisdiction in 2008. The, its laws were very old-fashioned, very strict on the books. But because officials feared high turnout on election day in the polling places, there was a culture of encouraging people to vote absentee anyway, even if they didn't fit the actual excuse. And so, and that was occurring in Minnesota, in localities. People were getting that message out. It was on, you know, on public radio or you know, radio advertisements, uh, public service advertisements. But also, these voters were watching CNN and learning about no excuse early voting all around the country. And so the the there was a huge rise in absentee voting, the volume of absentee voting in Minnesota that can't be explained by a change in law, that can't be explained by aggregate turnout increase. It's all shifting to absentee voting as this cultural phenomenon. So, so, so there may be quasi-no-excuse jurisdictions that aren't officially no-excuse jurisdictions. And then the final point on that is my understanding is that the two parties approach these two modes of early voting very differently from their get-out-the-vote effort. But for whatever reason, demographically, the, the Democrats focused on increasing early voting as their preferred mechanism. They, you know, they would get the vans and they would mobilize and they would get people to go out to the early voting centers. This was certainly true here in Franklin County in Ohio, but I, my understanding is it was in other states that had that option, Florida, California, and so forth. Um, whereas the Republicans, they preferred mail-in early voting as their mode of, of approach. And I don't know whether that factor would affect your analysis. That's great. Uh, let me thank the panelists, thank all of you. And Herb, we have one question for you. What is our expectations about the quality of lunch? <laughs> I'm sure it'll be very high, but let me make two announcements as we break for lunch. Uh, one uh, for the panelists for this afternoon, but also for tomorrow. If you don't have your uh, PowerPoint up there yet, if you're using PowerPoint, uh, do use the lunch as an opportunity. And two, I'm at least, I've got a car here, and given it's raining, I'm going to use that rather than other modes to move to some good coffee during the lunch period. Anybody wants to come with me, or if anybody else has cars with and is, wants to go to Starbucks or Cup of Joe's for people who want more than the coffee we have here, that'll be another opportunity. So. Are you setting yeah. our expectations about the coffee? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, coffee here, but some people prefer the uh, latte. We're going to enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> he's got it down low. Right. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.